Well, may the grace and truth of Jesus Christ our Lord be with each and every one of you. I invite you to open your Bible, if you have it, to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. We, we continue our series on the Gospel of John, the Word made flesh for the life of the world. And today we're going to look at the first 15 verses of John, chapter 6. So if you will, find that in your Bible and be ready in just a moment to read and study this portion of God's Word. The story we're going to look at today reminded me of an experience that I had several years ago when I lived in Mexico. A long time ago in a village far, far away, my wife and I were invited to spend Pascua, which is Spanish for Passover, with a friend in her village on the outskirts of Mexico City. The village had a tradition of reenacting the story of the gospel. In other words, they would reenact the story of the arrest, the trial, and the crucifixion of Jesus. Crowds of people flooded to the village to see that spectacle. Vendors took advantage of the crowds and turned the streets into a marketplace. Since it was Good Friday, dry fish was in high demand. And it seemed like everyone was selling, buying, and eating dried fish, what appeared to be mostly carp, eating it on tortillas. So the smell of fish and swarms of flies filled the air. My gag reflexes were in high alert. We made our way from the plaza down to our friend's house where we had been invited to eat lunch with her family, this afternoon meal with her family. Her grandmother set us down at the table and began serving us lunch. At first, we saw a little salad of cactus and stewed tomatoes, which, while rare, was not out of the ordinary, was not too bad. But then came portions of dried fish and stacks of tortillas and bowls of salsa. And a lump formed in my throat and a cold sweat broke out on my face because all I could think about was the smell of fish and the swarms of flies and how flies had probably been on this fish. So it took all we had to eat the first round and then the second round and then mercifully we were able to avoid the third round. But we did this by performing a very simple trick, which I will share with you now. Pro tip, in case you're ever in a situation like that, here's what you need to do. You put salt in every tortilla that you're going to eat. Roll the tortilla up tightly and eat as many tortillas as you can, thus preventing yourself from eating those other very strange looking dishes. That's my pro tip for you. So we spent that Passover, that Easter Friday, eating fish and tortillas with a family in Mexico. Now the reason that story came to mind is because the story we're going to look at today happens around the time of the Passover. And it also involves bread and fish. The story we're going to look at is the story of the sign of Jesus multiplying bread and fish to feed a crowd. 
And over the next two weeks, what we're going to do is unpack the meaning of that sign. So what it means for you today is that you're going to hear more about what you should believe than about what you should do. In the next couple of weeks, you'll hear a little bit more about what you should do. But today is basically learning what you should believe concerning Jesus and this sign. Our sermon text for today is from John 6, 1 to 15. It's printed in your worship order if you'd like to follow along. If you're able and willing, I invite you to please stand and pay close attention to God's holy word. God's word reads, After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when, he had eaten their, when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the twelve baskets with fragments from five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. That is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all God's people said, Amen. may be seated. Now you notice the story begins with the words, after this. Meaning, after the showdown between Jesus and the religious leaders, this is what happened next. A large crowd was following Jesus because they saw the signs that Jesus was doing on the sick. Not just the sign of Jesus healing the lame man in the house of mercy, but the sign of Jesus healing others as well. I want to remind you that John says that Jesus did many signs which are not written in this book, but the signs that are written in this book are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you may have eternal life in His name. Now, the story here seems straightforward enough. So we might be asking, or maybe if I could read your mind, you're saying, what could we possibly say that isn't already stated in this text? Well, I'm so glad you asked, because as with most stories, we see that there is more going on here than meets the eye. Here's what I want you to think about today as we make our way through the story. 
Keep in mind that John is comparing and contrasting Moses and Jesus. And the reason he does that is because in the mind of the Jewish person, Moses was the superhero of their story. He was the superhero of their tradition. But as great as he was, John wants us to see that now someone greater than Moses is here. So from the beginning of his gospel till now, John has been showing us and telling us in a variety of ways that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses is good, but Jesus is much better. Now, if you were listening closely to the reading of the story, you probably heard echoes of the Passover and the exodus from Egypt reverberating in the background of the story. So in this story, we see that Jesus appears as the true and better Moses, who is leading a crowd of people to a new Passover meal and on a new exodus out of Egypt into the wilderness and down to the sea. Except the difference is that in this story, Egypt looks a lot more like Jerusalem. And Pharaoh looks a lot like the Pharisees. Now in this story, just as Moses went up on the mountain with the elders of Israel, we see Jesus going up on a mountain with the 12 apostles who represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus goes up on the mountain and he sits down in front of the apostles and he sits down above the crowds. But why? Well, John is showing us that Jesus is sitting as shepherd to watch over his flock. And he is sitting as the king to rule over his subjects. And he's sitting as the prophet to teach his people. So from his seat high up on the mountain, he looks out and he sees his people. A phrase is used here that's very important throughout Scripture. It says, he lifted up his eyes. And he saw the crowd. He lifted up his eyes and he saw the crowd. Now what's happening in this story resembles other stories that we've seen and heard in the Old Testament. So there are echoes of several Old Testament stories coming into this story. For example, in the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 11... We see that Moses at one time was confronted with a hungry crowd. He faced a very similar situation that Jesus faced. And Moses' response was that he was displeased with the people and then he lost his cool with the Lord. By contrast, when Jesus lifted up his eyes and he saw the crowd, he did not grumble or complain about them, but rather he counted it as favor in God's sight that the Father had laid on him the burden of all this people. And even though Jesus did not conceive them or give birth to them, Jesus carries them in his bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child. And he carries them through the land that God swore to give their fathers. In other words, Jesus was willing and able to do something that Moses was not willing and able to do. Unlike Moses, who was not able to carry the burden of all of these people alone, Jesus 
was able to carry the burden of all these people because he did it in the love of the Father and in the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, you know already that he was sent on mission to do this very thing. However, the mission of carrying the burden of all these peoples was so heavy. It was so heavy, even for Jesus, that eventually it will take his life. Now, unlike Moses, Jesus does not grumble and complain about all these people. As one commentator says, Jesus sees the people come to him with all their needs and hopes. Jesus sees the people come to him with all their needs and hopes. Please do not overlook the grace and truth of that simple statement. Please do not let it pass by your ears. That Jesus sees you. He sees your weakness, your brokenness. He sees your loneliness. And when Jesus sees you coming, He does not roll His eyes or shake His head or pass judgment in His heart. Rather, He rejoices that you are coming to Him. He's happy to see you. And He looks for ways to help you. In other words, Jesus is not like other men. He's not like other religious people. He's not like other ministers that you might have known. When Jesus lifts up His eyes and He sees you coming to Himself, He knows what you're bringing and He knows what you need long before you ever get there. Now I hope that encourages you to keep on coming and keep on drawing near to Jesus no matter what, no matter what baggage you have, no matter how heavy your load, how full your hands, no matter how empty your life. I hope you just keep coming, keep drawing near to Jesus. I hope you lift up your eyes and see where your help comes from. Your help comes from the Lord, who is the maker of heaven and earth. And there he sits on his throne, lifting his eyes up to watch over you. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He watches over you night and day. Moses was not able to do that. But Jesus is able to do that. Now, unlike Moses, who also tested the Lord with these words, where am I to get meat to give to all these people? Jesus tested his disciples. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? You see the difference? Moses is saying, it's all about me, myself, and I. I can't do it. And Jesus tests his disciples and say, how are we going to take care of this as a community? What can we do? Now, he knew what he was about to do, but his disciples had no idea that what he was about to do was even possible. It never crossed their minds that Jesus might do the thing that he's about to do. So they did the thing that comes natural to all of us. They sat down, they pulled out the checkbook, they start crunching the numbers. They call the church treasurer over and say, hey, can we afford this? Can we take care of this? What are we going to do? So they crunch the numbers and they quickly answer him, eight months wages worth of bread would not even be enough for each person to have a snack. In other words, they go to Jesus and they say, here's our deacon report. We ain't got no. 
There ain't enough bread to buy any bread. So they know by experience. They know by natural cause and effect. They know by basic economic principles that there's just way too much month at the end of the money to take care of this large crowd. Everyone wants a mega church until they have to pay for it. Then they don't know what to do with it, right? So that's the problem they have. Probably a good problem, but it's still a problem. Now, as a side note, I want to say that I do take one comforting anecdote away from this story, and that is knowing that Jesus and his disciples operated on a shoestring budget. I take great comfort in that. It sounds just like a congregation we all know and love. Now, to drive home the point a little bit more, one of the disciples comes up, and I don't know, maybe you read it differently than I do, but I kind of think this disciple is sort of ribbing Jesus a little bit, kind of maybe bringing some comic relief to a situation, but he's like, hey, I found someone. Here's a boy that has a lunch. He's got five pieces of bread and two dried fish. Ta-da! And then he adds, but what are they for so many, right? What's interesting about that comment is that for mere men, and I mean for you and for me, five loaves and two fish are as nothing. But for the God-man, they are as everything. In the Old Testament book of 2 Kings, in chapter 4, we find a story that's very similar to this story. Elisha the prophet was faced with a challenge of feeding 100 hungry seminary students. And a man shows up with a few loaves of barley bread. And Elisha told the man to give the barley loaves to the men. And they all ate and they had all that they wanted. And then there was bread left over. Well, the same thing is about to happen here, but not with 100 seminary students. It's about to happen with 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Jesus sends word to have the people sit down on the green grass beside the water of the sea. And then he comes down from the mountain, down to where the people are. And like a shepherd, he begins to feed his flock. Now, we've been together long enough that I would be so disappointed if at this point in the sermon, a well-known psalm of David is not playing like a soundtrack in your ears. What you should be hearing and seeing in this imagery is that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. One of the truths we learn in this story is that we should never ever underestimate the grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in this story that he takes the food of the poor. That's what barley bread was. That's what dried fish was. He takes the food of the poor and he causes the food of the poor to multiply so that every man, woman, and child in the community, in the crowd, and we're talking thousands upon thousands, would have more than enough rich food to eat with plenty of leftovers. This is a clear picture of the grace and mercy of God at work in our lives. 
That when Jesus gives us gifts, when he gives us grace, when he gives us bread and fish, when he sustains us, he doesn't just give us enough to get by. He's not giving us just a little dab to get us over. He gives us far more than we even need. Far more than we can even consume. Another truth we learn in this story is that God's creative work is not always ex nihilo. In other words, it's not always out of nothing. Sometimes it is actually out of something. Yes, God can create out of nothing, and He has done so. But many times, through His providence, through His governance of the world, God takes a little bit of something that already exists, and He duplicates it, and He multiplies it, and He turns it into a whole lot of something. That's what happens in the story. Nothing is impossible with the Lord. He can create bread and fish out of nothing if he wants. Or he can use the little bread and fish that a boy brings him if he wants. Nothing is impossible with the Lord. So personal experience, natural causes and effects, basic economic principles do not set limits on what the Lord can and cannot do. They are not the standards. Rather, the Word made flesh for the life of the world. He is the standard of what can and cannot be done. He is the standard of what ought and ought not be done. Another truth we learn in this story is the necessity of gratitude, no matter how much or little we might have. This reminds me of a time when I attended a leadership meeting with some very poor Christians. We sat under one light bulb in a room. My friend and I had brought cookies and Coca-Cola, a two-liter, for refreshments. We served the refreshments up while the meeting was taking place, while the men were talking. I was the last one to the table. I plopped down, grabbed a cookie to pop into my mouth when I realized that all of the men around the table had stopped talking. Their hands were folded in their laps. Their heads were bowed. One of the men looked over at me and said, Aren't we going to give thanks for these gifts? And in that moment, I realized that in much of my life, I tend to take for granted what others take as gifts. All of life is gift. And Jesus shows us even here by taking bread and giving thanks and then giving bread to the people. How important it is to be thankful even for the food of the poor. Barley bread and dried fish. The word for give thanks comes from a Greek word that means or that we get our word Eucharist from it. We, people use that to refer to the Lord's table. We'll get into that some other day. But the point I want you to see is that Jesus shows us by example how to be truly thankful for all of the gifts that God has given us. I don't know how much you have or how little you have. I don't know how much more you need. But I do know this, that whatever the Lord has given you is grace. And for that, you should be truly thankful. Don't ever fail to give thanks to God for those little gifts in life for cookies and barley bread and dried fish and Coca-Cola. 
and the other lavish, extravagant gifts that he has given him. Another, true, another truth we learn in the story is this, that anyone can serve the Lord. No matter how young or old you are, anyone can serve the Lord. And the Lord can use whatever gifts you entrust to Him, no matter how much or little they might be. Think of all the times you thought of doing something. You thought of offering a gift or a service. You thought of writing a card. You thought of making a phone call. You thought of seeing someone. You thought of just giving someone a hug or patting them on the back. And suddenly you held back because you thought that your gift that you were about to give just wasn't good enough. And so you kept it to yourself. What if the little boy had said, I'm keeping my lunch to myself? The Lord can use whatever gifts you give Him, no matter how much or how little they are. So with the Lord's help, even you little boys and you little girls can do big things for the people of God. And sometimes you can even do more than the big boys and big girls. You know why? Because the sad fact of life is that sometimes the bigger the person is, the smaller his faith is. And sometimes the smaller a person is, the bigger her faith is. So don't underestimate what the Lord can do through you, whether you're old or young, whether you're big or little, whether you have a lot or not much at all. Don't underestimate what the Lord can do. He loves to work with His people. He loves to use your gifts for His glory and for the good of others. Now in the story, Jesus gave fish and bread to the crowd. And as we're going to see next week, the sign is actually pointing away from the fish and the bread to a larger and deeper reality. What we're going to see, I'll give you a hint of it now, is that Jesus was actually giving himself to men, women, and children. Jesus is the fish. Jesus is the bread. He is the ichthus. He is the son of God. He is the manna from heaven. So he gave bread and fish to the crowd to fill an immediate need. And that's a sign. But the meaning of the sign is this, is that he's giving himself to the world to fill an ultimate need. We'll go on to say later that everyone who feasts on him will always be filled and will never be empty. In other words, you can have as much of Jesus as you want and there will always be enough for more. So I want to urge you, on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, to come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And come, he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to Jesus. Hear that your soul may live and he will make you an everlasting covenant. His steadfast and sure love. For behold, God has made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Thus saith the Lord in Isaiah 55. Now, when the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. 
The crowds who followed Jesus were not theologians. They were not high-powered individuals. They were ordinary, blue-collar folk. You might even say that every, they were everyone who was in distress. Everyone who was in debt. Everyone who was bitter in soul. Everyone who was disgusted with the religious leaders and the political rulers. That's the kind of person that was gathering to Jesus outside the camp, out in the fields, at the foot of the mountain. They were right to conclude that Jesus was the prophet who was to come. But they went a step beyond, didn't they? They come and they want Jesus to be commander over them. They want to make Him their king. They want Jesus to lead them in a revolt against Herod and then against Caesar. If it is true that an army marches on its belly, just imagine what an army could do with Jesus commanding it. That's what they're imagining. He could feed them with only a few provisions. He could heal their sick and wounded in the course of battle. He could strike fear in their enemies because he's not afraid of anyone. Such an army would be invincible. Now again, they were right to draw the conclusion that Jesus was the prophet that Moses predicted. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your own brothers. It is to him you shall listen. The Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he, he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So the people were spot on. Jesus must be the prophet about whom Moses spoke. But then they take a wrong turn. And they decide that they should make Jesus king by force. And here's the problem. Jesus did not come to do their will. He did not come to reign as king over their tiny notion of a kingdom. He simply refused to be the mascot of their political party. So sadly, instead of repenting their sins and trusting in Jesus as the sign indicated that they should do, the crowd drew the wrong conclusion about the sign and made the mistake of trying to politicize Jesus for their own goals and ends. Now it's so easy to criticize them for doing that. Maybe some of us are thinking, I can't believe they tried to make Jesus king by force while many in our nation are trying to make him president by force. But he won't have it. As Scott Sauls points out in his book, Jesus Outside the Lines, some believe that putting Christians in office and other places of power is the key to transforming the world. If only there were more people in power who followed Jesus, the reasoning goes, that would be the game changer. That would finally make the world what God intends it to be. While it is indeed a very good thing for Christians to serve in public office, neither the Bible nor history supports the idea that holding positions of power is the key to bringing God's kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. 
On this point, Jesus' own resistance to earthly power is telling. At the peak of his popularity, the people wanted him to be king. But he had a different agenda. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Why would Jesus resist earthly power? Because Christianity always flourishes most as a life-giving minority, not as a powerful majority. It is through subversive, countercultural acts of love, justice, and service for the common good that Christianity has always gained the most ground. And we learn that by watching the life of Jesus. Jesus was not a zealot. Jesus is not a Republican. Jesus is not a Democrat. Jesus is not a Libertarian. Jesus is not an anarchist. Even at their best moments, all of those parties are still very cheap knockoffs of the real thing. And still, we see each one desperately trying to recruit Jesus to their team. Socialists want Jesus to feel the burn. So they point out that he redistributed fish and bread to equalize the haves and the have-nots. Communists point out that Jesus shared the boys' lunch with everyone because it must have really belonged to the whole community and not just to the individual. Capitalists want Jesus to make America great again. So they point out that Jesus manipulated the market and exploited the laws of supply and demand. And anarchists point out that Jesus refused to be king and to rule over others. And you get the point. All distortions of what Jesus was actually doing in this story. But the point is, Jesus refuses to take sides in their politics. He refuses to take sides in our politics. When we go to Jesus and ask him, are you for us? Are you for our team? Are you for our party or for our adversaries? His answer is always the same. No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And now I have come. Take off your shoes from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. In other words, Jesus refuses to allow himself to be co-opted to our profane politics by calling us into his holiness. He's not coming to our ground. He's calling us to his ground. And that requires us to give up a few things, doesn't it? When you take off your shoes before Jesus, you're indicating he is the king and I am a servant. Servants don't wear shoes. They're subject to their master. He wears the shoes. In other words, Jesus flips the script on everyone and that story and our story when he says to us, are you for me or for my adversaries? Now the point is that Jesus did not need a crowd to come make him king by force. It's not like he wasn't king already. He simply wanted the crowd to acknowledge that he was already and still is the king. And that they should acknowledge that by faith. 
So perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew and went back up to his throne on Mount Zion. Now, I know that many of you are deeply concerned about the state of the Union. And I know that many of you are very uncomfortable with some things happening in our culture. And I want to say that I share your concerns. So I don't want to make light of those concerns at all. But as your pastor, I must urge you with all your heart to consider not only the end of this story, but also to consider the story of our nation and our cultural situation in the light of Psalm 2. The nations rage, the peoples plot in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, you see them trying to cast off the authority of Jesus Christ from them. But he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and he will terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And as for you, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And with all this in mind and in heart, let us pray to the One who sits on the throne above heaven and earth, the One who has all authority in heaven. O Sovereign Lord, it is to you that we turn our attention. It is to you that we lift our prayers and we cry out. We live in a world of trouble. There is fear on every side. We feel the ache of anxiety in our hearts. We feel the burden of cultural change all around us. We worry and fret over these things, but in this moment, bring us to our senses, make us sober-minded that we may lift our hearts and lift our prayers to you, confessing that you are King and Lord, that you reign over the earth, that you reign over us. It is in you that we will find refuge and shelter. It is in you that we find hope. It is in you that we find relief and protection. And while enemies rage and rant around us, and while many try to strike fear in our hearts, we pray, O Lord, that you will speak, that your word will be clear, that you will exercise your authority, that you will reign and rule over your church and over the world. We pray that you will be set apart in our hearts as Lord and that we will not call conspiracy everything the people around us call conspiracy and that we will not fear what others fear, but that we will live before you in reverence and awe. 
Though the mountains shake, though the earth gives way, though the land fall into the sea, we pray that we will run to you and find in you our refuge and strength. We confess, O oh God, that we are hungry and thirsty in many ways, and we seek to slake our thirst and satisfy our hunger with the gods of lesser things. I pray that you deliver us from junk foods that poison the soul and break the heart. I pray that you will feed us with the body and blood of Christ, the word of truth, the spirit of grace, and that we will find satisfaction in these gifts. Oh God, we thank you for the sign that Jesus performed, a sign that points us away from ourselves, away from our brokenness, away from our, our emptiness and our lack but helps us to see that in Christ alone we find all we need, all we could ever desire, and that He is graciously willing to give us all things. All these things we ask and pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.